foolishness and wisdom are compared in this passage. And what, I've, what we've been saying about wisdom is that it is the way to think and act in ways that actually correspond to reality. It's a, ways, it's a way to live in accordance with how the universe actually works. That's wisdom. Foolishness would be the opposite of that. It would, to think, it would be to think and act in ways that don't actually correspond with the way the universe works and therefore to suffer consequence, consequences for it. So wisdom corresponds with reality. It lives, it thinks in a way that corresponds with the world as God created it. Foolishness rejects God's revelation, rejects the way the universe is, goes off its own way, and suffers the consequences for doing so. In this passage, um, Koheleth, the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, who we think is Solomon, um, is comparing and contrasting wisdom and foolishness. And so I want to start just by reading chapter 9, verse 13. And if you just read with me through 10, verse 3 to get started. The preacher says, I have also seen an example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise are heard in quiet. And they are better than the shouting of a ruler from among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. So just in those few short, pithy statements, you see that uh, the preacher is contrasting and comparing wisdom and foolishness. And he does so, this is almost like Proverbs, this whole chapter. Um, it's a string of observations and sayings that are very compressed and they express a truth. The preacher's aim in this passage seems to be to underscore the foolishness in the world, while at the same time highlighting the need for wisdom in navigating daily life. Um, a lot of these Proverbs in this passage are bad examples. Now, as we were talking before service started about bad examples that we've seen in our lives. Maybe you've had bad examples in parents or dealing with, you've seen people handle money poorly. There are plenty of bad examples that you learn from and you can learn from them. The wise man learns from bad examples. And so while there is some good 
um, sayings in this passage, there are a lot of bad examples the preacher gives us in order that we might learn from them. So I think studying this passage today is going to give us a better grasp on wisdom and how to navigate life according to God's reality. The first proverb that we start out with today is seems to be a proverb of a poor wise man, in verse, starting in verse 13. Um, and I think this passage illustrates the fickleness of human society. So, as we read, this parable starts with a small city that was attacked by a mighty army, which built great siege works around the city. So there's a city, a small city, that's helpless in light of this massive army coming. City with maybe 500 people, with a mighty 200,000 person army building siege works against their walls. Interestingly enough, this is not something that's just simply made up out of the creative mind of the preacher. This kind of thing happened all the time during the preacher's day. We have examples of, of it in scripture as well. And one of my favorite examples is when Sennacherib came against Hezekiah. And you can read about that story in 2 Kings 18 and 19. But what's very interesting is we found something called the prism of Sennacherib, dated back to 701 BC. And on it, hear what Sennacherib, the king, writes about his besiegement of Jerusalem. He says, as, Hez as for Hezekiah the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities, walled forts, and to the countless small villages in their vicinity, and conquered them. Himself I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence like a bird cage. So he besieged the city. He came against it with a mighty army. Sennacherib continues, the prism continues, I surrounded him with earthwork in order to molest those who were leaving his city gates. See, the strategy of a mighty army in those days would be to surround the city with your army and simply camp there until the food in the city runs out, the water dries up, the resources dry up, and the people in the city who are weaker either have to come out and fight and almost certainly be destroyed or surrender. That was military strategy back in the day. Now, you can go to 2 Corinthians uh, 18 through 19, and see how it actually turned out for Sennacherib in the end. And I would encourage you to do so. But all of that is simply to illustrate the point that this kind of thing did happen a lot in the ancient Near East during the day of Solomon. So what happened in this situation, in this proverb? A poor wise man was found in the city, and he saved the city by his wisdom. Now that we don't, we don't know what exact, how exactly he saved the city in this proverb. What is it through diplomacy? 
Did he discover some, some way to negotiate with the surrounding army? Was it some kind of military strategy? We don't know. Was it an escape route that he found outside the city? We're not told. We're only told that through this man's wisdom, he delivered the city and it was saved. So wisdom, wisdom was effective. It was not might. It was not force. It was wisdom that was effective in saving the people of the city. And yet, we're told, in verse 15, no one remembered that poor man in the end. So through wisdom, the poor man saved the city, but once delivered, the people forgot him and abandoned his counsel afterwards. So Solomon's purpose here is to illustrate the fickleness of human societies. Yes, wisdom is more effective than might and force and strength and power, but it's often neglected by the masses. Why is that? Why is it that the wisdom that delivers a city is neglect, neglected afterwards? Why is wisdom neglected by the masses? I think verse 17 gives us at least a clue to that. The words of the wise are heard in quiet, and they are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than might, but foolishness is often louder. And that is why the masses very often neglect wisdom. Because we are drawn as sinful people, sinful humanity is drawn to what is more loud, more bombastic, because it's more entertaining and it stirs us up. And we're less prone to, the unregenerate man especially, is less prone to the dialogue of a measured sober-minded, reasoned man. Perhaps it's not entertaining, it's not as bombastic, but we're more drawn to the tastier things. We want the debate, we want the noise, we want the, the arms flailing everywhere, we want the, the, the tweet-sized comeback. And actually, our political discourse has degraded into that kind of discussion. I don't know, I, we watched uh, the Republican national debates or I saw some reviews and it was all of, the, all of the candidates were just trying to get a word in and be the loudest and be the most bombastic to get their points across. And that's just the way politics is now. Even the Senate, it's almost like they're, they're always trying to give a, a gotcha to the person. So it seems that wisdom is quieter, and that's why it's neglected. But foolishness is louder. The World Economic Forum tested something they call the, bubble, the Babel Hypothesis. And the Babel Hypothesis was the hypothesis that talking 
No matter what the content is, no matter how intellectually infused the speech was, no matter how reasoned it was or sober-minded it was, or even how, if it was correct, simply talking made somebody more popular and made them to be a leader in the eyes of a group. And so they tested 33 groups of college students. Each group had four to 10 students in it. And they said, listen, we want you to figure out this, this business problem or this military problem. Discuss this for 10 minutes and come to a solution. And uh, the article reports, we usually think of leadership as being very content driven. Someone says important things, so we follow them. Now that's logical. Yet here was a pretty consistent, here was pretty consistent evidence that the people seemed to attribute leadership to people who babbled or just spoke a lot. It turned out then when, when asked, the leaders who emerged from the group, they asked them, who, 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 were, who do you believe is the leader of the group? Who, who is the best leader of the group? It was not the highest IQ person, nor was it the person with the, most, the best content. It was the person who spoke a lot in the group. And so I think that's, that's sort of what Ecclesiastes is saying to us. Verse 18, a ruler shouts among fools and is heard, but wisdom is often heard in quiet. I mean, certainly we see today's public dialogue argument by outrage, not by content. And so when forming opinions, the takeaway here for me is to lean towards the quiet counsel of reason that may be slower, more measured, require more nuance, but to understand things very well before we run to form opinions. Kyle gave me a whole lesson yesterday on, on Middle Eastern politics. It was, it was fantastic. So I was able to form an opinion by the quietness of Kyle's wisdom as we talked for maybe a half hour about what was going on in the Middle East. It was very informative. But very often, um, the news today is just going to give one-liners and, and misinformation. And so you need to, rather than run to the loud thing, run to the quiet wisdom and consider it for yourself. That's what Koheleth is saying. Um, in verse 10, or chapter 10, he begins comparing the inclinations of a wise man versus the inclinations of a foolish man. Um, he says, we, wisdom is really easily undone by foolishness. Verse 1, dead flies make a perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom. So imagine if you had rotting flies in your perfume. We've all had flies in our coffee before, and I cast that into the abyss when, I, when that happens to me. Some of you drink that, and I don't know what is going on, but I, I throw that away. But imagine dead flies rotting 
and stinking a perfume. So a little wisdom is enough to outweigh, a little folly is enough to outweigh wisdom. Ian Proven, a commentator on Ecclesiastes, says it only takes one shouting fool to persuade the masses, the masses of the righteousness of his cause. What about decisions, the fool's decisions and the wise man's decisions? Verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. This is not a political statement. This is... Um, <laughs> this is, in, in, in the biblical mind, the right hand is the hand of blessing, and the left hand is the hand of dishonor. And so Psalm 1611, for example, says, In your right hand, Lord, there are pleasures forevermore. How about when it comes to judgment? Matthew 25 Jesus says, before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. So in the biblical mind, the right hand is the hand of honor and blessing and wisdom. The left hand, which is usually the weaker side for most people, was associated with dishonor and even cursing. So right hand, in the right hand, there's blessings in life. But the fool is the kind of person who seems inclined, seems to always lean towards what's not going to work out for them in the end, what does not honor God, which is going to reap consequences that are disastrous for them. The fool is inclined towards what is less valuable and wrong. Verse 3, he is not only inclined that way, but his foolishness seems to be a fixture of his being, the preacher says. Verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone, he is a fool. So even if you put him on a straight path, his lack of sense may shift him to the right or the left. And it says to everyone that he is a fool. So not only is society at large fickle, Koheleth is saying, but the preacher also fears that foolishness is less accidental and more a fixed trajectory of the person's soul. Now, the fool is not only inclined to foolishness, but he is destroyed by that very inclination. Look at verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and the serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits, a logs, splits logs is endangered by them. So these examples here of maybe breaking through a wall and there, there's a snake in the wall that bites you or splitting logs and, and getting a splinter, all of these seem to represent stirring up trouble. Like if you dig a pit 
for someone else, you'll fall in it kind of thing. And so stirring up trouble often brings um, problems for the person who stirred up trouble. Proverbs 26, 27 says, Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts rolling it. So whenever it seems the kind of people who work to cause disaster on other people are the kind of people that get themselves into trouble. Wisdom is different, though. It does not meddle. Wisdom represents a way of going through life with ease and confidence. Verse 10. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. When I was a, when I was a little boy, my friends and I, wanted to chop down trees in the woods and be a real outdoorsman. But we didn't have an axe that had a sharp blade. So we found down in my basement some uh, golf clubs. And we took four golf clubs, there were four of us, and the, took a good, good sized tree, maybe this side around. We whacked that tree for hours with our golf clubs and we got it down. It took all day, but we got it down. Now, if we would have used an axe with a sharp blade, it would have been much easier. Much force was used in getting that tree down. And we don't even know why we did it. I think that represents what the preacher is saying here. If you have a sharp blade, you're not going to need to apply a lot of force. If you use golf clubs, it's going to be very hard. And so that's like wisdom. Having wisdom is like going through life, life with a sharp blade. It helps cut through life with greater facility than simply forcing your way into a thing. Well, what is wisdom? It's how to apply knowledge, right? And to live according to the way the universe works. And verse 11 is a saying that represents the failure to apply knowledge. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Now, I don't know if you've seen snake charmers, but they have flutes that they kind of play and they have cobras come up and they follow the flute and it's very interesting. I'm not exactly sure how that works. But apparently they, they don't get bit, so it works. Um, but if the snake is, bites before it is charmed, then the knowledge of charming didn't actually do that person any good, right? If the snake actually bites you before you charm it, then that knowledge was, you, you just didn't apply that knowledge. You didn't use it. And so... People, yes, some people suffer for lack of knowledge. But some people don't suffer for lack of knowledge. They suffer for lack of application of their knowledge. And that is wisdom. It's a failure to apply knowledge for many people. You have to use your wisdom. And... Wisdom often requires more energy 
more discipline, more faith in God, and more resolve than foolishness. Foolishness is very often easier and maybe even more attractive immediately. But wisdom is different. Wisdom requires you to actually apply yourself. Um, Ryan lent me a book on the book of Ecclesiastes, and I found this little paragraph very helpful. The uh, author commenting on this, this section. He says, our churches are filled with Bible-believing people who have mangled their lives because they were bitten by the snake. That is, they didn't use their knowledge. They didn't apply their knowledge, and therefore they were bitten by the snake. They didn't put their wisdom into practice. What about you? Are there areas of your life where you know the right thing to do, but are just not doing it? Are you praying with your spouse? Are you reading your Bible with your kids? Are you out of debt and using your money wisely to fulfill the Lord's calling on your life? If the answer to any of these things is no, you need to put wisdom into practice. That, that is a requirement to be a disciple. It's not, the Great Commission is not go and make believers. It's go and make disciples, pupils, followers, who believe, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. So we are not just hearers of the word, we're doers of the word. Amen? So there are many people I'm sure you've seen in life who were bit by the serpent before it was charmed because they did not apply their knowledge. Um, Nidia and I have a friend who had all of the promise in the world, tall, handsome, in, in very smart, talented. Um, but as a young man, he got married, um, fell towards addiction of alcohol, ended up cheating on his wife, getting hooked on other drugs, and uh, just recently he was living with a girl in Section 8 housing upstate and wants to turn back to God. Praise God. He wants to turn back to God. Here's the thing. In that 15-year span between when all the promise was had and now, he knew all the Bible, the Bible verses you do and I do. And he could stand here and probably warn you about the dangers of loose women and alcohol as taught in Scripture. But what's the, the problem in his life? He did not apply the knowledge he had. He did not charm the snake. He was bitten by the snake before it was charmed. So, it is a very dangerous thing to not Use the wisdom, apply the wisdom that you have, or else you may be bitten by the snake. What about the speech of a foolish person? Those are the decisions of a foolish person. What about the speech of a foolish person? Well, um, 
Verse 12, we know that a wise man's mouth wins him favor. Why is that? The Greek, or the Greek, the Hebrew there for favor could be gracious. So the wise man's mouth is, great, or is gracious. So in other words, he speaks with honesty, the wise man. He speaks with humility. There are three reasons that you should be humble when you speak. Number one, you're a creature. You're not the creator. And you don't know all things and you're not omniscient. Um, you're a sinner before God. Not only are you a creature, but you're a sinner. And you've gone off your own way. And number three, if you're a Christian, you're a saint, meaning you're dependent upon God. And you're not living by your own strength and power. So you have three reasons there. You're a creature, a sinner, and a saint. All reasons to be humble. Because you are, you are not the source of all goodness or knowledge. You have not lived a perfect life. And you are not living by your own strength now. So you should be very humble. Me too. And so a wise person speaks with honesty. He speaks with humility. He speaks with respect for the person that he is speaking to and retains a good reputation because of it. Paul says in Galatians 4, 6, so how should we talk with people? Should we just say what's on our mind? Should we be brash? Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Even a rebuke could be gracious, if done graciously. The fool is different. He speaks error. He actually speaks under the pretense of certainty, but he does not actually have certainty himself. And he covers his lack of knowledge with a multiplicity of words. Verse 13. The beginning of, of the words of his mouth are foolishness. And the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? I am sure you've seen this before. You've seen foolish men who don't actually have a good handle or grasp on things for some reason think it's appropriate to just speak about the matter with confidence. It's an amazing thing. He multiplies words presumptuously. He speaks on matters he does not know about. And our, our American society is actually promoting that kind of thing. Uh, I am not a sociologist, but I, I'm sure you've seen too that even, even in our lifetimes, the person you would listen to maybe 30 years ago would be a person who knows something, right? The person who you listen to now is a person who has an opinion because they've maybe experienced something. And I'm not saying that that experience is is nothing, but the tides have shifted. There is a book called The Death of Expertise. And the thesis is that the expert is actually a, a not even needed today in the eyes of the people because 
everyone's an expert on anything in their own mind. He talks about college professors who are constantly being challenged by everything from the students because they seem to think they have all knowledge, even freshmen who come into class. So, foolish people speak under the pretense of certainty and they cover their knowledge with a multiplicity, their lack of knowledge with a multiplicity of words and they're consumed by their foolishness. Now the same fool who claims knowledge and multiplies words to create that pretense of knowledge is the same man who can't give directions to the next town. Verse 15. The fool or the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. He can't even give you the directions to the next town. That is to say, he may, he may speak a lot, he may even speak with, with intellect, but when it comes right down to it, he does not know how to live life according to the ways that God requires and according to the reality that God has set in motion in the world. Um, foolish, the foolishness works itself out in practical areas of life. There is a book called The Intellectuals. And The Intellectuals is a book that examines the life and thought of some of the most important thinkers in Western civilization. Um, Rousseau, Karl Marx, Leo Tolstoy, Jean-Paul Sartre, Bertrand Russell. And it talks about the teachings and life of all of these teachers. Again, I'm getting this book from your book, Ryan. So thank you. Half of this sermon brought to you by Ryan and his book. Sponsored by Ryan. So the author of that book says, but he didn't just study their teachings. He also examined the way they lived their lives. He looked at how they treated people, their habits, their marriages, their kids, and their friends. Do you know what he found? He found that every one of those people scoffed at God. They pontificated on eternity. They denied everything holy and presented themselves as the fount of all wisdom. And get this, but most of them didn't have the sense to raise a child well. And they didn't keep their marriages together. And they destroyed first themselves and then everything around them. The intellectuals. So, you can be very intelligent and still be a fool. Because wisdom is the application of knowledge in life in very practical and real ways. Foolishness not only destroys families, it destroys civilizations. Woe to you, verse 16. O land, when your, child, when your king is a child, that could mean child in fact or child in spirit, and your princes feast in the morning. And here's what happens. When, let's say, the, the king is a child in spirit, Here's what happens. Verse 18 happens. Through sloth, the roof sinks in. 
through indolence, the house leaks. Verse 19 also happens. Bread is seen as useful for laughter and feasting. Wine is seen as something to gladden life. And money is thrown at situations that answer things. And it covers poor decision making. And if you even dare say anything and rebuke a foolish king, be very careful. Verse 20, don't even curse the king in your bedroom because if a bird carries it to him, he will have your head. And this was written in the time when this was a reality. So when leaders are children, they don't have priorities. Isaiah Let's see, 5, 11, and 12 condemns foolish leaders in Israel. It says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and they have the harp, they have the tambourine and the flute and the wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or seek the works of his hands. So they run to self-indulgence, but they do not look to the heavens from where they came. A good king, however, is verse 17. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility, and then your princes feast at the proper time, not in the morning. For strength, not for revelry and drunkenness, so the son of nobility has been tutored from a young age in his duty. And feasting will be done at the proper time instead of when work should be happening. Through foolishness, money is gambled away. Through foolishness, families are broken apart. Through foolishness, people are imprisoned. Societies are destroyed. Lives are mangled. It is foolishness. Not just bad decision making, but foolishness according to the scripture. Now, what, have, what if you've been foolish in your life? In a sense, we've all, we have all been foolish to some degree or another. And that's we are sinners who fall short of God's glory. What would you say to a foolish man or woman? I'll tell you what Jesus said to a crowd who is considering wisdom and foolishness. He says in Matthew 7, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, but, it has, but because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these, mine, hear these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. 
Jesus is talking about active trust. This is back to the idea, the concept of the charmer and the snake, the application of knowledge. What we do with Jesus is not just believe him, but follow him. Whoever hears these words of mine and what and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So Jesus is commending active trust in him. And his claim is, if you build your life on me, you will be safe from utter disaster. The wise man doesn't just think the rock will protect him. He builds his life on the rock. He builds his entire life on it. That is his thought patterns, that which he chooses to warm his heart, and his decisions for him and his family are founded on what is obedience to Christ in this specific situation. He had confidence on the rock and therefore built his house on it. The foolish man was different. He built his hands, his house on the sand. That's a complete rejection or indifference to Jesus' commands in his life. Now, if you build your house on a sand, you'll have better, you'll have better, a better view of the sea and the shore. If you build your house on the sand, you'll have easier access to water. If you build your house on the sand, disaster will come to your house, and the great of the fall of it will be. But to build the house on the rock, note, note the man who built his house on the rock still endured winds and a flood. You see that? Jesus is not saying that no hard times or no difficulties will ever, ever come to you. But he's saying that you will withstand those things by Christ who strengthens you. If Jesus can turn water into wine, then surely he can sort out the consequences of your foolishness and my foolishness in life. So, as I consider a Koheleth's, the preacher's comparison of foolishness and wisdom, it makes me look to Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, I want to use wisdom in navigating life, but this is what we said a few weeks ago. What if we considered Christ the wisest and, and smartest man who ever lived? Why not think of Jesus like that too? Our Lord, our King and our Master, our Savior who died for our sins and rose again from the dead, and our Teacher who is the wisest man who ever lived because his teachings actually teach us how to live a life that corresponds with God's reality. And fruit will come from it. Fruit will come from it. You know the righteous man in Psalm 1? He meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. In all he does, he prospers. 
and as the leaf does not wither. Yes, winds will come, floods will come, and we do not preach prosperity in this church in the popular sense, but we do preach fruitfulness in this church. You will be fruitful. A man who is filled with the teachings of and obedience to Christ will live a fruitful life in spite of in spite of the storms that come at him in this life. So, we look to the real preacher, the real Koheleth, that tells us how to navigate life. And the, fool, the most foolish thing a man could do would be to neglect the teachings of Christ to navigate life. 